Hello again and uh, happy Sunday. Glad you guys are joining us here. And uh, to our online friends, we say hi. Say hi, everybody. Hi. All right, and uh, join us. Even if you're at home, we want you to shout out loud. If you're at uh, Disneyland watching this live, you know, some, my wife and I did that when we were out of town. We watched uh, live service. We want you to shout wherever you are, even if you're online somewhere. Scare somebody, that's okay. All right, so we're going to do our shouts. What do we do? We love God and we love others. And what do we say? I love God and I love you. Fantastic. Good morning and welcome home, church family. Glad to see you and, and welcome if this is your first time here. Uh, we've been taking, uh, we've been talking um, about lambs for the last, now this is going to be our second week, and, and I hope that during our service time that, that you're not just waiting for me to speak in order to hear God speak. I hope that you've had, even this morning, moments to breathe and just sit with Him for a second, and, and maybe it's in the time of communion that that is where God will speak to you the most. So. The religious time isn't just when the pastor talks. The, the spiritual time is from when we see one another right when we get in. When we sit here and we, we listen and we just take time to draw near to God. And I, I, I pray that you've been doing that this morning. So uh, we're in this series called Lambs. So in eighth grade, I was sitting in this Bible study circle. Uh, I, on one of the few occasions I went to church, I didn't go to church often, but, but one time I was there and they were talking about Jesus and then they were talking about lambs, and then they were saying Jesus and lambs and Jesus and lambs over and over, back and forth kind of thing. And, and I was like uh, falling in and out of junior high consciousness, as if you know how that goes. Like, you know, like, you're not really paying attention. Your eyes are open, but like nothing is going on. So they kept saying lambs, Jesus, lambs, Jesus. So, and I, I, so I'm sitting there, and then all of a sudden I was like, huh. I had this like epiphany. It dawned on me. And I was like, hey, this guy, he's not just talking about like actual lambs. You know what? I think he's talking about Jesus is, is kind of like a lamb, not actually a lamb. And uh, I know, that's such depth, right? Such spiritual insight. I think clearly everyone else in the group understood that that was what he was trying to get at, um, but, but I didn't. And, uh, but, but then I did. Uh, I was a little bit late to the theological party. Uh, but today, I get to share that same truth with you. We're going to be talking about Jesus and lambs, and if you're a junior high and you're going in and out of consciousness already this morning, then, then just to say, not physical lambs, we're talking about a spiritual reality. And so we're going to, I'm going to share that truth with you. Last week we saw God using lambs through the Old Testament as vehicles for his provision, uh, vehicles for salvation of his people uh, to avoid death, and uh, in, in ways so that he could connect with people. Specifically, we looked at the Passover lamb and, and where God's spirit of death passed over all those people who trusted what God said and obeyed what he asked them to do. And so the Passover lamb was this powerful statement. It was a powerful miracle in and of itself. But, but the Passover lamb foreshadowed an even greater reality, a greater miracle to come. And that's what we're going to see today. God indicates that this truth about the Passover uh, was more than just for that moment, when he talks about it through this prophet named Isaiah, about 500 years after the actual prophet, uh, uh, Passover. And Isaiah writes this. This is a famous passage. Uh, we call it a, a messianic um, prophecy from Isaiah in chapter 53. And here's what Isaiah, God told Isaiah to write. Surely he took up our pain and he bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. 
But he was pierced for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. And the punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, we've turned to our own way. But the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And so this famous passage of Isaiah goes on and talks about, in hindsight, we see that he's talking about Christ being crucified. But this is, you know, 500 years after the Passover and some 750 years before uh, Jesus actually comes on the scene. So Isaiah is prophesying about a future Jewish Messiah. This lamb imagery, combined with the statement that he laid on him the iniquity of us all, speaks of something greater than just the regular sacrificial system that they, that they were going through. So, so the prophet Isaiah says, there, there is going to be a sacrifice, and it's going to be like a lamb sacrifice, and, and it's going to be more than the Passover, and it's going to be more than our yearly sacrifices. It indicates that when he says he's going to lay on him the iniquity or the sins of all of us, That speaks of something greater than their regular sacrifice. This is like the Passover lamb, but so much more. It ups the ante. So now we jump all the way to the New Testament, and there's this guy, John the Baptist, who goes before Jesus, uh, starts his ministry. John is is baptizing people and telling them to repent because the Messiah is really close to coming. And here's what John says. This is recorded in uh, John chapter 1. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said there's a guy coming after me who's surpassed me because he's before me. I myself, I didn't know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. So John literally here says, like, Oh, look, he's the Lamb of God. This guy, Jesus, right here. Now, this is the first time that this phrase is used of Jesus. This is the first time we find in the Bible or anyone saying like uh, equating the Lamb of God, the Old Testament, Passover Lamb, the sacrificial Lamb, all that kind of stuff, equating it with Jesus right here. Now, this may not seem overly interesting to us because uh, we've sort of read the Bible and we know how it all pans out, but this was fresh news to people. He was saying like, this was, Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. There was... It wouldn't make any sense to say, Here, here's the sacrificial lamb of God. The guy's walking around. And yet John is saying that ahead because John sees him for what he will do and what God has called him onto the planet to do, and that's to save us from our sins. So, so John recognizes that even ahead and gives him this title that wouldn't make any sense when he got it right there. Here, there's the lamb of God. But that doesn't make any sense in any of our... Old, we we're looking at the Old Testament last week and then this week in terms of like... What does that mean? That person is a sacrifice? That doesn't make any sense. So John declares, though, that the provision is going to come from this new lamb. And now the interesting thing John says, he says, uh, here's the lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. Remember the Passover lamb. What did it do? It allowed God's spirit of death to pass over them, but it didn't forgive them from their sins. And when they made sacrifices, it just allowed God to turn his head away and not punish them for sins, but never took away their sins. So this is a brand new kind of statement, that this, this new lamb will take away every sin whoever, uh, of whoever is willing on this planet. That's a powerful distinction between Passover and take away. Now we jump to the end of Jesus' life, and he's 
This is the night before he's crucified. So Jesus' timeline, Thursday, Friday, he gets, so Thursday is the Last Supper, you know, famous painting. Yeah, Jesus did that painting. And then uh, Friday is the uh, Passover meal, and then uh, Saturday is official Passover, and then the first day of the week is Sunday after that. And so they, they uh, Jesus sort of follows this same timeline. And so this is the Thursday before the Passover, uh, before Jesus is actually crucified. He's crucified on Friday. So uh, while they were eating, and this is in Matthew 26, while they're eating, Jesus takes this bread and he, he gave thanks and he broke and he gave his disciples, take and, and eat. This is my body. And I want to you recall your mind back to last. What do they do on the Passover with the lamb? They were required to eat the Passover lamb. Right? They didn't just sacrifice it. They put its blood, its blood passed over the sin, but they were required to eat that, to take that lamb into themselves. And here Jesus is saying almost the exact same thing. Now this would be on their minds. How come it would be on their minds? Because they're in the Passover. Like that's, that's the holiday they're celebrating. It's like when you're at home, uh, uh, Christmas is sort of about Christ, right? So in, in, well, hopefully. And not, not a, I don't know if in everyone's home, but it ought to be. And so this is on their mind. And so he says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the blood, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them. And he said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of a new or different covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So here he says, like, like the lamb our ancestors ate, to bring God fully into themselves and to, to say, God, I, I'll obey you even if it sounds pretty strange. Jesus says the same sort of thing. You need to take me into you wholly and fully, spiritually speaking. So in the original Passover, the lamb had to be perfect. And, and the Bible tells us Jesus is perfect. And in the original Passover, the lamb had to die and its blood was shed to save the people from death. And Jesus dies and his blood saves us from ultimate death. Jesus dies the day before Passover, like the Passover lamb. And then he's in the grave during the Passover, and then he resurrects the day after Passover. Now, the other lambs didn't do that. Now, it's not a coincidence that Jesus is connected to the Passover. He is the fulfillment of the Passover that had happened thousands, 1,500 years before Jesus was born, foreshadowing what was to come, even from Moses' time through Isaiah, and now fulfilled in Jesus. Even the Apostle Paul specifically calls Jesus the Passover lamb. In Corinthians, he says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Peter expounds on this after Jesus was resurrected. And here's what Peter writes. He says, for you know that it was not with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life that that was handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. So Jesus is perfect and better than the Passover lamb. There's nothing more valuable, no money, no item, no creature, no creation. Only the blood of God is valuable enough to redeem each of us, as we're seeing here in this passage. Only God's blood, or God in human form, is powerful enough to redeem us from our sin, to buy back, to pay the price for our sins. Now that tells us a couple of things. It tells us how bad our sin actually is that the cost is that high. But it also tells us how great God's love is for us, that he would be willing to pay an outrageous price. You got to the store and there's a pack of gum and it was $75,000. And you're like, for bubblicious strawberry, you know? And you're like, 
nah, too much, right? That, that's sort of like you. You're, you're in this market and, and your price tag says like $65 billion. And God's like, I'm willing to overpay for that one. I'm willing to pay the 75000 for Strawberry Bubblicious because I want it that much. Yeah, your, your intrinsic value may not be very great in reality because we're full of sin and we're messed up and who are we in the cosmos? But God doesn't see it that way. He says, I want that one and I'll pay whatever it takes and, and I'll prove to you I'll pay it by dying myself for them. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the foreshadow. He's the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the fulfillment of God's plan for the permanent redemption of the people on this planet. And now we're going to jump into Hebrews 10. This is kind of the kicker passage. It's kind of a long passage, but it's got big implications. So, so let's look here, talking about the Passover lamb. Jesus being that, not a lamb, of course. Supernaturally. So the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, it can never make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, they would have stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of their sins. It's impossible for the blood of, of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice an offering you didn't desire, but a body you prepared for me with burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then he said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So first he said, Sacrifice an offering, burnt offerings and sin offerings you don't desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance to the law. And then he says, here I am, I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, the priest stands and performs religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he's made perfect forever those who are being made holy. For one sacrifice he made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them after that time, says the Lord. Then I'll put my law in their heart and I'll write it on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless acts I will remember no more. And where, the, and, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. So that wraps up the whole need for the sacrificial system. When Jesus came, he said, all the thing that God has been doing in the past, he's not doing that anymore. That's not the agreement anymore. The new agreement is you come to me and all your sins are wiped away, even ones that you haven't committed yet. Because when Jesus died on the cross, you weren't even born. You hadn't committed any sins, neither had your sperm and egg, neither had your ancestors' sperm and egg. They're not only committed any sins. And so when Jesus dies for your sins, and when you accept that, it isn't just past sins that he pays for, he pays for your future sins. That's his new agreement. That's why we can be perfect. We don't have to go week after week or year after year and get a new sacrifice, because if we had to do that, then that sacrifice was not sufficient. 
just like the Old Testament sacrifice was not sufficient. So we don't have that. The Hebrews is crystal clear saying that is not what we have now. What we have now is Christ once for all. You accept him as your Savior. All of your sins are, are forgiven. That's why God can see you perfect right now. When he looks at you, he doesn't see your future sins. You're going to do some sins probably this week or next week. But when God looks at you, that's not how he sees you. Maybe that's how you see you. Maybe that's how I see you. You know, I see some of your sins. You know. But that's not how God sees you. See, we're trapped moment by moment, but God isn't. He doesn't have to go from one second to the next second. Now I do, and, and probably in 75,000 seconds or 5,332 seconds, I'm going to maybe do a sin, and I have to sequentially come to that. But God doesn't. He's outside of that, and so he forgives all your sins. He's looking at your human timeline. And so now when he sees you, he said, those sins are all forgiven. I just see perfection. It's hard for us to sort of think that way because we don't feel that way. I don't always feel perfect, but, but that's God's reality for us. And you can either reject that or accept that. That's between you and him. In, in God's new agreement with people, Jesus pays it all for all time. That's why we say there's freedom in Christ because it doesn't matter now. It doesn't matter if people think you're cool or if you get a raise or if you move up the corporate ladder or it doesn't matter if like, you get in an accident and you get disfigured. Like, it doesn't matter. God thinks you're perfect. It doesn't matter if you get good grades at school or if you get a raise or if, if you live in a big house or a small house. None of it ends up mattering because God already says you're perfect, you're mine, and, you're, and your destiny is set. You're coming with me when you die. And there's freedom in that. Sin's no longer remembered, completely forgiven. This is God's new offer. It's new agreement for all humanity. That through Jesus, we can be perfect in God's eyes. All sins wiped away. And so I'm hearing that reality. I'm a religious person. I've heard this a bunch. What am I supposed to do with that information, though? Okay, then what? Well, thankfully, the author of Hebrews wasn't done in, in chapter 10, and he's got a few more verses, which, which sort of indicate, once you understand this, once you get this, some things are going to happen in your life. And he's going to list about eight different things that are going to happen. And, and this isn't an conclusive or uh, exhaustive list. There are other things that happen as well. But, but he says... How do you want to respond to those things? Once you realize all this about God's perfection, that Jesus is that Passover lamb, that the perfect one, that's one sin for, for you, all people forever. He says, here's maybe how you can navigate it. The following verse says, Therefore, so he just gave all this information, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, Here's what we can do. Here's our response. One, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart. The second one, draw near to God with full assurance that, that, that faith brings. The third one, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from our guilty conscience. Four, having our bodies washed with pure water. The fifth one, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for, we have, uh, for he who promised is faithful. And the next one, let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And the seventh, not giving up meeting together as some people get in the habit of doing. And the last one, but encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And so in this list, we see 
we see some things that relate to God, the first section. One thing that's talking about hope, and then the last uh, three are talking about interaction between men and God. I mean, uh, men and men. So the first section is the truth about Jesus changes our interaction with God. It gives us confidence to approach God, that we never have to be ashamed again. Sometimes we get stuck in, in a guilt lifestyle where we, ah, oh, oh, I always feel so guilty. Oh, I didn't do this. I could have been a barren parent when I, I messed this up, or I, I should have made this investment, or I should have, uh, you know, been nicer. I should have done these things, and we can get caught in this sort of guilt place. But the Bible's saying you're free from guilt when you're found in Jesus. So we have confidence, never ashamed. No need to hold shame. No reason to doubt our standing. We are approved by God. I think guilt and shame often negatively affect our, our thinking. They negatively shape who we think we are. But God offers freedom from that. He says, you don't have to navigate in guilt and shame. You can navigate in freedom because I forgave you. I paid it already. And then it says that we have full assurance that we have access to God 24-7. Access to the throne room of the God of the universe. We can, we can go in and talk to God. We can give Him our worries. We can tell Him what we're mad about. We can tell Him what we're frustrated about. We can ask Him for provision. We can ask Him for the things that we're worrying about. His door is always open if we're willing to go in. And He says there's spiritual cleansing both inside and out. God offers you freedom from all the things that you have done. And some of them are pretty wicked. Some of them are pretty messed up. There, there's some messed up stuff that people know about, but I would guess that there's probably some really messed up stuff that people don't know about. There's some messed up stuff inside of you that, that nobody knows. Thoughts you've had, places you've allowed your mind to go, things that you've dwelt on or, or brought into your own, own life. You see, God frees you from even those. He cleanses you from all things. There's no sin too great. No, you're never too far from God. You cannot outfall His hand of grace. He will always catch you. And so the truth about Jesus being the Passover lamb changes our interaction with God. I don't need to be scared of God. I don't need to think that He's going to punish me. Well, sometimes we have that because that's how our fathers worked, right? You get scared of God or you don't follow all the rules, then God's going to get mad. <laughs> but that's not the God of the Bible. That's, the, that's our twisted view <laughs> from, from our own personal lives. God, God says, I'm not going to be mad. I love you. I see you as perfect. I love you right now, right where you are. And so it changes our interaction with God. The truth about Jesus changes our hope. We're always hoping in something, you know? Get a scratcher, you're hoping to win that thing, right? Powerball, 480 million this week, you know? Woo, come on, I'm, I'm hoping in that. Hoping to get a raise or hoping that cute girl likes me. <laughs> like, whatever, whatever it is, we're, we're always hoping in something. But when, when we have Jesus, when we turn to Jesus, our hope changes a little bit. He says, let us ho uh, hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So we've got to hold unswervingly to this hope. So it gives us something to do. Then the enemy, he's going to try to snatch it away. He's the, the devil will try to snatch your hope away to tell you, oh, God didn't really mean that. Oh, you're not really forgiven. Oh, you're not really that great. Oh, God doesn't actually think you're wonderful. The enemy will try to give lies. He'll try to snatch God's truth out of you. And, and so you've got to hold on to that truth or that hope. 
And if, if he can't snatch it away, the enemy will crush it inside of you, you know. Or the, the enemy will cause you to maybe even relax your hold. You know, I have the hope of Jesus. Man, I'm so on fire. I love the, I'm hoping in the Lord. He's so amazing. He's amazing. And then, and then your business is pretty successful and, and like your finances are pretty good and you're, you're, and you're good, you know, and, and everyone's healthy in your family. And, and so you sort of start to relax your hold. And then your hope becomes in your retirement plan or your hope becomes in the promotion that you did get because you're so smart and you are. And you, and you did it all right. And, you, and, you, and so sometimes we don't hold tightly to the hope because of success, not just because of failure. And we relax our, our hold on, on what is the hope. Our hope isn't in anything on this planet, but it's in the Lord. So we're tasked to hold tightly to hope. In the middle of difficulty, hold on to hope. In the middle of success, hope, hold on to hope. In the middle of depression or self-doubt or worry or sorrow... Or the opposite, in the middle of triumph and joy and success, hold on to hope and grab it with both hands. Because if we're holding on to hope with both hands, there's no way that I can grab onto something else. I can't grab onto an idol if I'm holding on to hope. I can't grab out and reach out for money if, I, if I'm holding on to hope. I can't reach for power or for or prestige or to influence or whatever it is if I'm holding on to hope two-fisted. So God says, two-fisted, hold on to hope in Jesus. In the last area, he says this truth about Jesus is going to change our interaction with one another. He says uh, when you have that hope in, in Jesus, it will give you a desire to spur one another towards love and good deeds. As I communicate with Jesus, as I am near to Jesus, as I believe and accept Jesus into my life on a daily basis, it allows me to see people different and say, hey friend, let's do this together. I want to see you love others, love God better. I want to see you, I want to encourage you to do good things. I want to help people love better and, and help them choose good. And he says, keep meeting together because that's what you need. Otherwise, you know, it, it's going to sort of grow stale and cold. Keep meeting together shows us the need for community. And, and the pandemic showed us how easy it is to fall away from meeting together. It's easier to not meet together. Full honesty, except for the there's five of us, uh, five extreme extroverts here. For the rest of us, it's easier not to meet. It's easier, but it's not better. I don't like eating vegetables. I don't like exercising. But I need to, and I do, because otherwise, uh, some bad things happen. And meeting together is like that for many of us. Some of you experts are like, can't wait. There's, there's three. I know, see, Peter's one, Trevor's one, Krista, she's, not, she's sick, I think. That might be it. The rest of us, it's hard. I recognize it's hard for us to be here. It's hard. I'm not an expert by nature. I'm an introvert. Uh, I'd rather be watching the Rams game too. Tommy, turn it off in the back. <laughs> by myself, just like Jerry does. He watches all football games by himself so no one else bothers him. Just enjoy this. Pandemic showed us it is super easy <laughs> to not be in community, but it's necessary for us and for others. And so don't give up meeting together because one of the things you can do when you meet together is you can encourage one another, the Bible says. When I, when I, got, when I got the hope, it allows me then to pour hope into other people. It allows me to encourage them and lift them up and point them to Jesus, the Passover lamb. Say good things to people that are around you to encourage them. 
This isn't maybe natural. So stop being stingy with your compliments. Say I love you to people more as, a, as just a way of encouragement. Tell them I'm proud of you more often. And I, it's going to feel awkward at first. About, about 10 or 15 years ago, I started telling my friends that I love them. Now, I've always told my family, oh, we were, our family was pretty good about saying I love you. That, that wasn't one of our issues. We always said I love you a lot. But I, but I never said it really to any friend before. About 10 or 15 years ago, I started to say it to my friends. And uh, so it goes something like this. And it really threw them off at first. You know, I'm on the phone. I'd say, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll meet up later. Okay, all right, cool, cool. Talk to you later. Love you. <laughs> Silence. Throat clear. <clears throat> Bye. Click. <laughs> that, that was them. That like, they did not know how to respond to a, a man telling another man that I love them on the phone. And then uh, the more they keep calling, talk to them. You know, after a while, sometimes I even get a "you too" back. <laughs> it has become less uncomfortable. And I and and the, some of my friends admitted to me. A lot of my friends are pastor friends. They're like, man, when you said that, that was so uncomfortable or whatever. And I said, I don't care. I love you. Like, I love you too, man. But can we not say on the phone? You know, that kind of like, <laughs> kind of thing. That's so sad if we can't even like, encourage people. Now, now, your encouragement doesn't have to be that particular word. I know that some of you have like a love word phobia. Like, I can't say that word. That's fine. I'm not saying get over your phobia. And it doesn't have to be that word. But, but how about we just introduce some more encouragement with one another? Has anyone been overly encouraged this week? Like you've just, you don't want anyone to say anything nice anymore. Like you just had way too much this week. Like you feel way too good about yourself. Has anyone had that? Has anyone ever experienced like, I have been encouraged too much today. I need to take a step back. I'm going to have a little less of this encouragement thing. No, we can't, out, we can't overdo it. We certainly don't overdo it. And, and I would say we're... we're significantly underdoing the encouragement. And this is just not from me. I'm, I'm just trying to tell you what the Bible says. Don't listen to me. I, I'm, look, I didn't know lambs and Jesus was like the thing, right? Back in July. And, and I'm barely smarter than that now. So don't listen to me. But listen to what the Bible says. The Bible says, as you have this Passover lamb, here's your interaction. It changes with God. Your hope is different. And then it changes interactions with people. So now that we can get to this place where we can encourage one another. And all this comes out as a response to Jesus' sacrifice and love for us. So, so now you get it. Jesus isn't a lamb. Jesus is the lamb. I mean, Jesus is he's my lamb. And he changes his everything. Jesus is the Passover lamb, not for a moment, but for eternity. He's the perfect sacrifice, giving his life so I could live. And through him, I'm cleansed, I'm new, I'm free. I'm changed. Free to tell someone that I love them. Free to know that God is not going to reject me. Even though I might make a mistake this week. I know I made some this last week. And yet God doesn't reject me. He loves me and cares for me. I'm forgiven, and I'm loved by Him. Would you stand together as we close our time? And just pause a second and receive God's love for you. And then, in honoring Him, we're going to sing back a worship song.